Sweet Jesus, thank you for this privilege to come into your presence, that we can pray, and that our need is our greatest argument. And Lord Jesus, I freely confess this evening, I need you. I don't have what these people need, and uh, I just pray that your strength would be made perfect in my weakness tonight, and that you would speak to us with power, with conviction and clarity, and that you would help us to better understand the everlasting covenant and how you do life. This is our plea tonight, Lord, and I ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 1 and verse 18 says this, that no one has seen God at any time, the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. So we're, we're addressing the topic this evening of God's love before the fall. God's love before the fall, and we'll kind of cover uh, through that, you know, even going further on. But the NIV reads a little bit differently. It says that Jesus was in the closest relationship with the Father. It says he was in the bosom with the Father. That implies a very similar thing, right? You're not going to have your head in someone's bosom unless you're close, I'm assuming, right? If that is the case, I'm not going to render any judgments, but I, I certainly wouldn't be doing that myself. And so immediately there's this implication here that Jesus has been in immediate proximity to the Father from eternity past, right? Just establishing that pre-existing relationship. In John chapter 17, turn with me there. Now, I'm going to go into the assumption that you brought Bibles with you here because I preach from the Bible and the Spirit of Prophecy. I'm just going to warn you on that. So if you don't want that, this may not be the place for you. I I hope you stay. But um, we're, we're going to be preaching from the Bible and from the Spirit of Prophecy and looking at a fair amount of references this evening. John chapter 17, the references should be up on the board. This is slide number 11, John 17, 20 to 26. John chapter 17... And beginning in verse 20, Jesus here speaking about his relationship. So this is really, really cool. John chapter 17 literally allows you to get a window into Jesus's prayer life. I think that's amazing. So in John 17 and verse 20, listen to what Jesus is saying to the Father. A very intimate conversation. He says, I do not pray for these alone, the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. So uh, this should be abundantly clear then that Jesus didn't come to convince the Father to love us. Jesus just said, you sent me here to do the work that I'm doing, which implies that God the Father loves and believes in you. Amen? That's John chapter 17. We'll continue. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. Verse 23, I and them and you and me that they may be made perfect in one, into a perfect unity, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Jesus is praying that the disciples' work would lead the world to know that God the Father loves them. I think it's amazing, okay? And then it says in verse 24, Father, I desire that they whom you have given me may be with me where I am. Jesus literally says that he wants you in heaven. In case there's any doubt in your mind, he desires that you might be with him where he is and that they may behold my glory, which you have given me for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus knows this. Jesus is not informing the father. Father, just in case you didn't know, you loved me before the foundation of the world. He's saying this for their benefit to make it abundantly clear that we have had a pre-existing love relationship that was before the world was, before any angels were, we had this fellowship one with another. So Jesus speaks of this relationship he had before the world was created. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, 
And these have known that you sent me, and I declared to them your name, which is also implying his character, and will declare it that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. That's John 17. 1 John chapter 4 verse 8 says that God is love. Amen? That's one of the most profound truths in the history of ever. That may not be good grammar, but that's a true statement. That this is the most profound statement. Not that God happens to have love in his heart, that God is loving. God is the source of love. You will not encounter any love on this planet that God was not involved in, right? Any form of genuine love. Now what... Not, not how we say love, or like Taco Bell and dogs and, and stuff like that. But genuine biblical love, you cannot find that apart from God being in the mix. But the thing is, love cannot exist in isolation. It's not possible, right? You could not have an environment or a situation in which there was only one person, one being in the entire universe by themselves and love be in the equation. That's not possible. And we're told this in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 to 7. Now, this chapter has a nickname. What's the, what's the nickname of this chapter? The love chapter. You've read this before, haven't you? A great exercise in humility, by the way, is to start reading. Once you get to 1 Corinthians 13, you can turn there, because uh, I, I think we're having some technical difficulties. Uh, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, if you were to begin in verse 4 and replace the word love with your name, every time that you lie, just repent. This is a great exercise in humility. If you think that you have arrived and you're like riding, riding Enoch and Elijah's coattail straight into heaven without tasting death, uh, and you need to be humbled, read this because uh, it's, it's, I'm not that. I don't know about you. You may be doing better than I am, but for me to say that I suffer long, I'm kind, I don't envy, I don't parade myself, I'm not puffed up, I don't behave rudely, I, I, I need Jesus. <laughs> I'm just saying, I need Jesus. But 1 Corinthians 13 says this about love. 1 John 4, 8 says that God is love. Then 1 Corinthians 13 gives us some kind of explanations as to what that looks like. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade what? Itself, which implies it's not selfish. It's not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own. Don't forget that. Love does not seek its own. It's not selfish. It's not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. So, if God is love, and love is not selfish, God has always then had to have someone else to give this love to, to share this love with. God himself is a family of three co-eternal persons, and it's always been that way. It's always been that way, a family of three co-eternal persons. And so there has to be someone to love, to be loved, right? Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Now, is he speaking about one person or potentially more than one person in the language he's using here? More than one. He's having a conversation with somebody else who would be in a similar situation to himself, right? God cannot talk to me and then say, hey, D, let's make something in our image because we're not the same. Are you with me? They would have to be on a level playing field. And he says that let us make man in our image according to our likeness and then let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the cattle, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God here makes man in his image and his image in this creation includes family, right? 
male and female, he created them when he creates man in his image. So when God creates in his image, he's creating a family because he himself is a family. Are you with me? There's a plurality involved here, which implies that there's been a whole lot of love since eternity past. God has loved the, God the Father has loved the Son. The Son has loved the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has loved the Father. And there's just this wonderful, peaceful environment amongst the three of them of continually deferring to the other, continually putting the needs of the other above themselves. And I believe this is why God says in Genesis chapter 2, as he does, that it's not good for man to be alone. No one here said amen. I guess you're all married. Uh, I learned some things about what it means when it says it's not good for man to be alone, but I can't talk about that right now because that's not what this sermon is about. Uh, But there's some prerequisites to this statement that I've come to learn that were very helpful. Uh, Otherwise, we'd all be hitched by now, probably. Okay, so, but it says it's not good for man to be alone, and I believe this is why. It deprives man of the opportunity to enter into the object lesson that marriage and parenthood provide in other-centered love. Moise, you're a married man, and you got a baby. When was the last time you slept? Been a while. Good answer. Good answer. So, but the thing is, like, even though you have a child, and your child is going to be loud, at times make messes, be stinky. I mean, let's just let's just be honest. But how do you feel about your child? You love them. There's this sense that it's teaching you to die to yourself and to put the needs of someone else above your own. You learn this first in marriage. You also learn this in the, in the process of having children. I believe this is one of the reasons why it's not good for a man to be alone because you're being deprived of this object lesson God gave to teach us how he does life. Always putting others ahead of himself talking about the everlasting covenant. Now, I'm going to geek out with you. Uh, well, you're, you're just going to come along with me. I'm going to geek out a little bit here. There's a book it's entitled, I meant to bring it with me. It's called In Granite or Ingrained by uh, Dr. Skip McCarty, who's up in the Andrews University area. An amazing book on the covenants. If you can't handle deep theology, just read the first chapter. You'll love it. It's beautiful, beautiful. Listen to this. He says, I'm convinced that at the heart of this complex study, as far as the topic of the covenants, the old and new covenant, lies a very simple truth. God is love. This is the message of God's everlasting covenant, that God loves people. Amen? That's at the heart of the covenant. The human race is sick and will die eternally if they do not get healed. And God offers to heal them and appeals for them to devote themselves to him and to trust him to do so. So that when you're giving, you're trusting he will give. Right? So you're not just thinking, I'll give if you give. No, you're giving, period. That's what agape does. Agape gives whether it ever receives back or not. That's just how it does life. And so the Old and the New Covenants progressively express God's everlasting love adapted to the universal needs of the human race. When God's love is responded to with faith, it produces what type of an experience? A New Covenant experience, which results in loving obedience. But if God is responded to with legalistic obedience or with no obedience, it results in what type of an experience? An Old Covenant experience. That's the significance of the Old and New Covenants in summary. But listen to this. But in God's covenant with humankind, God promises his wholehearted, whole-souled commitment even to the death, if need be, for human welfare. And he requires that same wholehearted devotion from humanity in return. That is indeed the definition and nature of God's covenant with human beings. The basic idea of the covenant is that of relationship with God. So when God gave the covenants to humanity, it wasn't, man, i got to think of something to keep these people busy so they don't just destroy themselves until Jesus comes. Uh, just do this. It's not busy work, right? It's not just, maybe you've had teachers. They don't really know what to do with you, so they give you busy work. 
God doesn't, that wasn't the point of the Ten Commandments. That wasn't the point of the covenants. There was a very important reason for this. And it has to do with his love for you and inviting you into relationship with himself. We'll cover more of that here in a moment. A relationship characterized by, by love, trust, and wholehearted commitment. This is perhaps, and I love this shift that he makes here. This is perhaps why Jesus identifies this so-called golden rule as the essence of the law and the prophets and taught that love to God and neighbor was the great law on which all the law and the prophets would hang. The golden rule plums the depths of God's commitment inwardly within the Trinity and outwardly to his entire creation. Herein lies the essence of God's covenant. It's an everlasting covenant of love. This is what God is inviting us to enter into. Just imagine, the almighty God of the universe is inviting you into a covenant of love with himself. No strings attached, no prerequisites on if you do this, then I'll love you. I just love you full stop. I just do. I can't stop thinking about you. You are what I long for and desire. And this is why I give and give and give and give, whether you ever respond or not. Because that's just how he does life. So God's covenant invitation is an invitation into the way that God does life. Other-centered, fully devoted, reciprocal love, it's how the kingdom operates and how it operates at its ideal. And honestly, guys, the Ten Commandments, the moral law, is really just a reflection of how other-centered love plays out vertically in your relationship with God and horizontally with our fellow man. That's all it is. Some of us have this view of the Ten Commandments as a bunch of do's and don'ts. It's a bunch of promises, first of all, if you read it in the Hebrew context. And second of all, this is literally just communicating in common language how God does life. Always putting others above himself. Horizontally and vertically. Not that anyone can go any higher than God, but you get my point. At least going down, up and down. It's what living the kingdom principle looks like. So when the Bible says that God writes his law in our hearts and in our minds in the new covenant... What's really happening, guys, is God is removing our selfish nature and imparting to us his character of unselfish, other-centered love. That's what a new covenant Christian looks like, which means they're not going to abandon the Ten Commandments. Amen? Because the Ten Commandments are the very essence of how God does life. They're not these legalistic requirements. It's just what love looks like outwardly. That's all they are. That's all they ever were. And then, so Ezekiel 36 should make more sense to you now when it talks about the new covenant in this context. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. I'll cleanse you from all your filthiness and all your idols. I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. Then it says, I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you. Then he says, I will cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. That's a promise. When you encounter the new covenant, when you surrender your wholehearted devotion to God, he gives you a new heart, and in that new heart, he empowers you to live a life that's in harmony with the way that heaven does life. We're told that whenever the fall of Lucifer took place, the angels were flabbergasted by the fact that there was a law. What law? What do you mean there's a law? All they knew was to do life unselfishly. They were surprised that a law even existed. And I think it's amazing. So walking in this law of love is a logical response to first receiving a new heart and the power of the Holy Spirit to impart Christ's perfect life to us. Now, we're told that sin is a transgression of the law. Yes? Did you know that we're also told that sin at its very base level is selfishness? 
Now, I'm going to go in on this for a while, and I'm going to use quite a few references from the Spirit of Prophecy. My slides will be given to GYC Northwest. You guys can have those if you want to re-see the notes or have access to them, or you can just come see me afterwards, and I'll email them to you. But listen to this, guys. This, this quote rocked me when I first saw this. A friend of mine put, this to, uh, put some quotes together on this topic, and it just absolutely rocked me. It says, this is Emma White speaking. She says, On the morning of October 23rd, 1879, about 2 o'clock, the Spirit of the Lord rested upon me, and I beheld the scenes of the coming judgment. Language fails me in which to give an adequate description of the things which passed before me and the effect they had upon my mind. The great day of the execution of God's judgment seemed to have come. 10,000 times 10,000 were assembled before a large throne, upon which was seated a person of majestic appearance. Several books were before him, and upon the covers of each was written in letters of gold, which seemed like burning flame of fire, ledger of heaven. One of these books containing the names of those who claimed to believe the truth was then opened. What does it say? Right? I got to know. Immediately, I lost sight of the countless millions about the throne, and only those who were professedly children of the light and of the truth engaged my attention. As these persons were named one by one and their good deeds mentioned, their countenances would light up with holy joy that was reflected in every direction. But this did not seem to rest upon my mind with the greatest force. That's amazing. She says, what I saw next took more importance than what I'm seeing here. And listen to what she sees. Another book was opened wherein was recorded the sins of those who profess the truth. And under the general heading of selfishness came every other sin. Many of us think whenever they see my name, it's going to say adulterer, thief, liar, hypocrite. The main heading that's next to every person for their sin is selfishness. Everything else falls under that category, but it's selfishness. This is the base, root, deepest level of what sin is. There were also headings over every column, and underneath these, opposite each name, were recorded in the respective columns, the lesser sins. You know, like murder and stuff, right? Anyway, I think this is amazing. This just blew my mind. So I'm going to keep going. This is First Selected Messages 115.1. Christ is to receive supreme love from the being he has created, and he requires also that man shall cherish a sacred regard for his fellow beings. Every soul saved will be saved through love, which begins where? With God, because that's how he's always done life, right? That's us entering into the everlasting covenant. True conversion is a change from selfishness to sanctified affection for God and for one another. Then she asks a question. It even makes an appeal and a challenge. Will Seventh-day Adventists now make a thorough reformation that their sin-stained souls may be cleansed from the leprosy of selfishness? Testimonies for the Church, Volume 6. The law that none liveth to himself, Satan was determined to oppose. He desired to live for self. It was this that incited rebellion in heaven, and it was man's acceptance of this principle that brought sin on earth. Are we seeming to see here that selfishness is kind of a big deal? Yeah. Book education. Unselfishness, the principle of God's kingdom, is the principle that Satan hates. Its very existence he denies. From the beginning of the great controversy, Satan has endeavored to prove God's principles of action to be selfish. That's called projection, where you take your own weaknesses and you project them upon the person that you're criticizing. Happens all the time, right? Even within 
buildings that have flames and Bibles out in the front yard. Even from the beginning of the great controversy, Satan has endeavored to prove God's principles of action to be selfish, and he deals in the same way with all who serve God. To disprove Satan's claim is the work of Christ and to all who bear his name. One of the biggest reasons Jesus came to planet Earth was to prove to the entire unlooking universe that's a lie. And he walked an unselfish life in your flesh, in my flesh. It was to give his own life as an illustration of unselfishness that Jesus came in the form of humanity. And all who accept this principle are to be workers together with him in demonstrating it in practical life. This is one of the ways in which the glory of God in Revelation 18 is going to be made known to the world. It's not just people standing behind pulpits preaching Bible doctrines. It's people living God's unselfish love to the world, and that brings them in. Because no one wants to come into a church that doesn't practice what they preach. We need some help there, don't we? At the cross of Calvary, this is Desire of Ages, at the cro- by the way, this book is just drop-dead gorgeous. If you have not read the book Desire of Ages, I implore you on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ, start today. Right? Just, just read. Read at whatever pace you can read. That's fine. There's no rush. But start reading this book. You will see a picture of Jesus that will sweep you off your feet, that will break your heart and call you even closer to him. I guarantee it. Guarantee it. But she says, at the cross of Calvary, love and selfishness stood face to face. Here was their crowning manifestation. Who do you think won? Love wins. Also in Desire of Ages. But turning from all lesser representations, we behold God where? In Jesus. You want to know what God the Father looks like? Jesus says, look at me. Right? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father I'm the representation of the Father. You can tell by looking at me how he does life. Looking unto Jesus, we see that it's the glory of God to do what? To give. I do nothing of myself, said Christ. The living Father has sent me, and I live by the Father. I seek not my own glory, but the glory of him who sent me. Listen to this. In these words is set forth the great principle, which is the law of life for the universe. All things that Christ received from God, or sorry, all things Christ received from God, but he received, why? To give. Every gift that you receive from heaven is with the intention for you to give, not to take. This is where Israel failed. This is where we as a movement can fail. It ain't just about us, right? This is an amazing prophetic movement that God is going to use to close the work, but we need to make sure we don't commit the same sin as Israel and think it's about me. Because we cannot bring Satan's kingdom principle into our kingdom advance. You with me? Those two principles cannot live in harmony one with another. So in the heavenly courts, in his ministry for all created beings, through the beloved Son, the Father's life flows out to all. Through the Son it returns in praise and joyous service, a tide of love. God gives love, Jesus returns love and adoration. A tide of love to the great source of all, and thus, through Christ, the circuit of beneficence is complete. Because we have not given God the love that he deserves, but Jesus in human flesh did give back to God what he deserves, and as a second Adam, succeeded where we have failed. So Christ, the circuit of beneficence is complete through him, representing the character of the great giver, the law of life. In heaven itself, this law was broken. Sin originated in self-seeking. Lucifer, the covering cherub, desired to be first in heaven. 
He sought to gain control of heavenly beings, to draw them away from their creator, and to win homage to himself. And therefore he misrepresented God, attributing to God the desire for self-exaltation. With his own evil characteristics, he sought to invest the loving creator, and thus he deceived angels, and thus he deceives you and me. We have these moments of temptation where we think, man, God, all God seems to want to do is just take. He's taking my food, taking my clothes, taking my entertainment. No, 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 no. What God is trying to do is give something better. But we're believing Satan's lies. Sin does not originate in wholesale rebellion. It begins in lies in the heart, specifically about who God is and how he does life. And we're falling for that lie, guys. Here we are wanting the bountiful blessings of the everlasting covenant, but we're living by Satan's kingdom principle. We're believing Satan's lies and how God operates, and it's causing us problems, and it brings dissonance to the human experience. He led them to doubt the word of God and to distrust his goodness. You ever been there? Because God is a God of justice and terrible majesty, Satan caused them to look upon him as severe and unforgiving. By the end of April, I will have been to 30 of our academies, three or four of our colleges, and many youth conferences and so forth. And I unfortunately have to disclose to you this evening that many of our own people believe this very thing. They're looking upon God as severe and unforgiving. Our human flesh just by default wants to run in this direction because we want to exalt ourselves. We don't want to be ruled. We don't want someone to tell us what to do. And the only reason why you would have a problem with someone telling you what to do is if you thought that they didn't care about you and they didn't have your best interest at heart. The only things that God requires of you to do are the things that you yourself would voluntarily choose to do if you knew what he knew. That's it. The problem is we're believing these lies about who God is, and in turn, we tell him, leave me alone. Thus he drew men to join him in rebellion against God, and the night of woe settled down upon the world. The earth was dark through misapprehension of God. And the world is still dark through misapprehension of God. And even in our own framework, there are people walking in darkness because of a misapprehension of God. That the gloomy shadows might be lightened, that the world might be brought back to God, Satan's deceptive power was to be broken. Amen? This could not be done by force, though. We don't use Satan's principle to overthrow Satan. Love always prevails. The exercise of force is contrary to the principles of God's government. He desires only the service of love, and love cannot be commanded. It cannot be won by force or authority. And then we now have the context for a line that's used very often, only by love is love awakened. Did you know that this is the context for that statement? Only by love is love awakened. To know God is to love him. We're told in John chapter 14, I believe, that this is eternal life, that they may know you. No, John chapter 17 and verse 3, I believe. It says that this is eternal life, that they may know you experientially, not just that they may have book knowledge of what God is like, that they may experientially know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's what a real eternal life looks like. And you know what? You do not have to wait until heaven to experience the blessings of the everlasting covenant and of eternal life. 
You can begin to experience both in the here and now. Amen? You can experience the love of God and know Him intimately for yourself right now. You have to wait until later. King David said, I would have lost heart for, were it not for the fact that I believe that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. If I had to wait until heaven to receive the reward to this thing, it'd drive me crazy. I would have lost heart, David said, were it not for the fact that I believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. This work, uh, so to know God is to love him, his character must be manifested in contrast to the character of Satan. That's part of our job. But we receive his character. We're not trying to work to earn it, right? We receive it from him. This work only one being in all the universe could do. Only he who knew the height and the depth of the love of God could make it known. And upon the world's dark night, the sun of righteousness must rise. I nearly jumped out of my seat on the airplane writing this on my way here just for joy. Because I live in a dark world. I don't know about you. I live in a world where I'm harassed by the devil himself speaking lies into my experience. But I am promised here that the sun of righteousness, the dark night, upon the world's dark night, the sun of righteousness not only must rise, he will rise. Amen? He will rise with healing in his wings. Anyone here need healing this evening? I believe the call of the last generation is in harmony with the call that Christ himself had to reveal God's perfect character of unselfishness and other-centered love. And that's not something you can create. You can only receive it. But we have a source, amen? And we have a willing source. To reveal God's perfect character and other-centered love, this display will not be ignored and only brings greater power to the message that they preach. So this should lead us to a sense of understanding, I need Jesus. I don't have that type of love, Lord. I don't have that type of unselfishness in me. I need you. You're right. You do. I'm so glad you asked. I've been waiting for this moment. This was God's intention all along with inviting Adam, Noah, and Abraham and the nation of Israel into covenant with himself to be his representatives to the world and to live out his kingdom principle. But unfortunately, they failed. So you know what happens? None of them fulfilled the covenant as was required, and so God covenanted to send Jesus. And this is where Romans chapter 8, verse 3 starts to make a whole lot more sense. He sends Jesus in the likeness of sinful flesh, like yours and mine. And on account of sin, Jesus condemns sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirement of the law, which is a law of unselfishness, so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in you and me, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You with me? Jesus came and blazed a trail for you to be able to live that life of unselfish, other-centered love and to fully reflect the true character of God. But here's a problem that happens with us in conservatism. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm in the camp, so don't throw any rocks at me. Um, there really shouldn't be any camps, by the way. I hate all of that, to be honest with you. But we can wrestle sometimes with this because we... I lost my train of thought. That's fantastic. And, and, and largely embarrassing. So I guess I'll just keep my mouth shut and move on. Okay, if it comes back, I'll tell you. If not, we'll just pretend that never happened. So through the perfect life of Jesus and through the Spirit imparting this experience to his new covenant believers, God has made a way for us to be reunited with himself forever. That's good news. He's made a way for us to do for us that in which we cannot do for ourselves. 
This is why God uses love to reach us and not fear. And we need to be careful with this. Because we, we, we value the fact that there are standards that the world is rejecting. Right? Do we not? We're going to deal with this stuff. We have to have these communications. We can't just pretend that God doesn't have requirements. We can't live that way. God has given us a very peculiar call to give a message of warning to the world to hasten Christ's coming. Let's not shirk that. Let's not run from that. But in that context, we also need to understand that if we're training people with our approach that leads to a fear-based response, the problem is fear, at its very root level, leads to selfish motivations. It leads to selfish motives. And this is where our camp can wrestle at times if we're not careful. It's okay to talk about Jesus. It's okay to uplift the grace of Jesus. We should do that more. Because if we tell people what God expects, but we don't communicate how to get where God expects, it leads to a lot of despondency in our movement because we just think, man, he expects a lot and I'm never going to be good enough. So I might as well just check out and quit. And these are not just theoretical views. I've had this conversation, I can't even tell you how many times with our people, with our young people. There's basically two responses that lead from us preaching a high standard without communicating how God promises through the ministry of the Holy Spirit and righteousness by faith to enable us to achieve that standard. The first is I'm a loser and I'll never be good enough and I might as as well quit. This religion thing works for everybody else, but it doesn't work for me. I'm a defective model, I guess. The second response is God is unreasonable. Why would God ask things of me that he knows good and well that I can't do? And if that's the case, I'm not interested. Hey, that almost implies that God is selfish. And so our people are wrestling because they just don't understand, no, 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 God is for you. He's not against you. The whole point of the covenant is the fact that I'm promising to empower you to do what you can't do for yourself. Ellen Wright phrases it this way, the faith I live by 111. She says, what is justification by faith? It's the work of God in laying the glory of man in the dust and doing for man that which it is not in his power to do for himself. And when men see their nothingness, then they're prepared to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. We have to see our nothingness and respond to God's goodness, and we'll receive the power we need in that process. And so if we're bringing selfishness into our quest for holiness, it's only going to lead to disastrous results, and we don't even realize we do this. But if we're not uplifting Jesus while communicating the standards, it leads our people to just try to do this to not get in trouble. Yeah, but if you're just trying to preserve yourself, you've missed the point. And now you're trying to use Satan's infrastructure to reach God's ideal. You with me? And that's not what God wants for you. This is why there's another phrase in here that I hope I have later. I think I do. So Satan is fine with your quest for holiness if the root structure that drives us is selfishness. Go ahead and believe present truth. Go ahead and believe in the reforms. But if it's selfishness that drives you, I'm still going to win at the end of the day. And he knows this. This is why God wants us to better understand the everlasting covenant, I believe. He projects his own character of selfishness upon God and then seeks to sabotage our own quest for holiness by supplanting a faith that works by love approach with one that is driven by selfishness. A faith that works by love is the approach that God wants for us. And you're only going to find love for God by first encountering his love for you. We love him, 1 John 4.19 says, because he first loved us. Yeah? Which means that we need to be communicating regularly the love that God has for us. Because one, we're prone to doubt, and two, it's not a bad thing. It's it's the best thing out there, I promise. So these two things are some of the biggest causes of people leaving the faith. Failed attempts at obedience and an unhealthy view of God. 
And I believe this is because we have had to some degree a systemic failure in our movement of how we present the expectations of God, uplifting the end result without explaining the process and how God enables us to achieve that result and how God views us during that process. The idea of imparted and imputed righteousness, that God views you as righteous while he's making you righteous. Most of our people don't know that. And so they think, I'm striving for a standard, and I fell once, even though I love Jesus and my heart was heavenward, but I fell once, I guess it's over. God must have cast me off and forsaken me. No, 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 that's, that's not what we're told. But that's what we believe, because Satan convinces us of this, because Revelation 12 refers to him as the accuser of the brethren, who accuses them before our God day and night. And so I think if we better educated our people on the process and how God views us through the process, we would not have the despondency that we have right now, especially on our side of the aisle. Because we have to lift up the standard. Let's not run from that. But please, please, please don't forget my friend Jesus when you're uplifting the standard. And now he's our advocate. John says in First John, he says, Beloved, I wish you didn't sin. I hope you don't. But if you do, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Then he says later, he says, if we sin, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You have an advocate. It's not over. Get back up, come back to Jesus and keep going. Amen? God is for you, not against you. Our people have to be reminded of this. And, it, and we just kind of make the assumption, everyone already knows that, we need to go into something else. No, no, no. Keep telling them that while you talk about other stuff. You can do both. It's never an either or thing. All right. Watch yourself, boy. Keep going. So we've been so focused on communicating the commandments of God that we unfortunately have neglected the faith of Jesus. And we can have both. What is the faith of Jesus? Come tomorrow morning, I'll tell you. Okay. In short, it's God seeing in you what you don't even see in you and treating you accordingly whether you deserve it or not. And Calvary is the greatest example of the faith of Jesus. All right, listen to this. This this quote is just... I almost lost it on a plane next to some lady who doesn't know me from Adam today when I read this. And I don't even care, really. Listen to this. Angels behold with inexpressible rapture the result of the working of the Holy Spirit in man. They're just mesmerized by this. By the revelation of the attractive loveliness of Christ, by the knowledge of his love expressed to us while we were yet sinners... The stubborn heart is melted and subdued, and the sinner is transformed and becomes a child of God. It gets better, though. Listen to this. Love is the agency which God uses to expel sin from the human soul. What is it that God uses to expel sin from the human soul? It's love. It's not fear. It's not scare tactics. It's not Jesus is coming soon and you're not going to have a mediator. We need to explain what a mediator is so we don't lose people. Um, yeah, it, what, what expels sin from the soul is not laying it on thick on how close Jesus is coming is. What should lead us to desire the second coming of Jesus is a marriage. We're going to talk about this in a couple evenings. The whole narrative of Scripture around the second coming is largely in marriage language. Jesus is coming back for a bride. He's not trying to surprise people and catch them off guard. That's not what Jesus is doing. He's longing for a bride to be made ready. Amen? 
Love is the agency that God uses to expel sin from the human soul, and by love, He changes pride into humility, enmity and unbelief into love and faith. He does not employ compulsory measures. Jesus is revealed to the soul, and if a man will look in faith to the Lamb of God, he will live. Amen? So this implies to me that we should always be preaching the love of Jesus with everything that we share. There's never a reason in which the love of Jesus isn't necessary. Because it's the thing that expels sin from the soul. It's what frees me from my pride, my stubbornness, and my selfishness, which I continually wrestle with. And so the more of the goodness of God that's poured into me, the more I realize my need of Jesus, and the more I want Jesus to pour this stuff out, to get this stuff out of my life, right? Not just uplifting a standard. Let's do both. You can actually talk about the standards and the law and uplift the love of Jesus. You can have both. This was never meant to be an either-or thing. The whole point of the 1888 message was the law and the gospel combined. That's the whole point. And it brought a massive revival into Adventism. Pentecost-like stuff. In 1889, 1890, 1891, 92, 93, the Spirit of God was being poured out in incredible measure upon the Seventh-day Adventist church. People were being healed. There was revival taking place. Why? Because we finally found that right equilibrium. Not downplaying the investigative judgment or the law, but we're also uplifting the love of Jesus and righteousness by faith. And when you do the two together, it's like thermonuclear awesomeness, guys. Just amazing stuff. I want to see that in my day. I want to see the latter rain fall in my lifetime. Amen? All right. So from eternity past, you have always been on the mind of the Father. There has never been a time when God wasn't thinking about you. Even before you existed, even before angels existed, you have always been on the mind of God. And so if you just wonder, does anyone care about me? Does my life even matter? Yes. The everlasting covenant makes it abundantly clear. I have planned for you. I desire you. I can't stop thinking about you. And even if you end up lost and destroyed in the second death, I'm still going to keep thinking about you and missing you. You're always on the mind of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and they've been working tirelessly on your behalf to make a way for us to be reunited forever. So we go back to John chapter 17 and verse 24. Jesus says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. Beloved, Jesus longs to see you in heaven. And the everlasting covenant and how he does life, he's wanting to see that replicated in your life. That they may behold my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. You have loved me from eternity past. And you have loved them from eternity past. And you've sent me to communicate this precious message to them. The everlasting covenant is good news. Amen? Amen? Very, very good news. God is for you, not against you. He has always been thinking about you. And Jesus himself longs to see you. But the question is, do you long to see him? Have you allowed Satan to rob you of the precious gift of realizing what is available to you? The very God of the universe is inviting you into covenantal fellowship with himself. No strings attached. Will you come? That's the question. Let's pray. God in heaven, I thank you that you have a love for us that knows no bounds. That's stronger than death. And I just pray that you would use that love to drive sin out of my life, that you would use that love to drive selfishness and pride and bigotry out of my life and mold and shape me into someone who could live out the everlasting covenant amongst my brethren. Lord, use me as a storefront 
to communicate to the world that you are love. Other-centered, outward-focused love. Agape love that gives and gives and gives whether anyone responds or not. Lord, I want to enter into that new covenant experience this evening. And we've seen that this is not a, a, a throwing away of the law. It's allowing the true principle behind the law to transform the life. Lord, enable us to live a life that's in harmony with the way that you do life and to enjoy it, we pray. Forgive our sin of unbelief. Cover those sins with the blood of Jesus. And I pray that you would send that promise, third person of the Godhead, to mold and shape us into the image of Christ, to impart his righteousness to us and to make us into those messengers that you need right now. And we ask these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.